When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the football podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as analysis of the elite level of the European game. This week, I'm joined on the transfer window by the Sunday Times football correspondent, the author of Peter Schmeichel's biography, as well as excellent books on Leicester City and Russia's World Cup, and a suitably long-suffering Aberdeen fan. <laughs> Welcome back to the transfer window, Jonathan Northcroft. <laughs> Hi, Duncan. I was quite enjoying the uh, <laughs> intro until you mentioned my suffering as an Aberdeen fan, but let's, shall we move on from that right now? <laughs> we shall, we shall. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Today we'll be asking what UK government sanction on Roman Abramovich means for Chelsea. We'll be talking about the culture of decline at Manchester United, among other topics, but we start with some news on Kylian Mbappe after um, his exit from the Champions League last night and that uh, kind of turnaround defeat that Paris Saint-Germain specialised in, um, 2-0 up in aggregate and eventually losing 3-2 to Real Madrid. Um, what I understand is that Real Madrid are very confident now that they can complete a deal to sign Mbappe um, before the end of the season. Now this fixture is out of the way. Remember we told you in the podcast that Madrid had come to a, an agreement with Mbappe not to try and sign a pre-contract, not to discuss a pre-contract until this match was played. I understand that they will look to have a meeting with Mbappe in the next 10 days and agree the terms of a deal. Um, they understand that Mbappe has rejected um, the offer of a two-year deal that Paris Saint-Germain have made to the player um, in order to keep him under Qatar employment going into the Qatar World Cup this December. That offer was for a 100 million euro net signing on fee and a 50 million euro net salary for two years. Madrid's proposal is worth, I'm told, less than half of that amount, but they are confident that Mbappe will choose to join them because they can offer him one, the fulfillment of a dream that he's had since childhood of playing for Real Madrid and two, to be the centrepiece of a team that they are redesigning, rebuilding around him uh, with the intention of making it the best in world football from the start of the 2023 uh, season. Um, Jonathan, what is your impression of what happened in that match last night? And um, hmm. what would you do if you were Mbappe and you had this proposal to become the the richest the richest contract in world football, but stay at a club that you have issues with, or move to I think arguably still the most prestigious club in world football? Well, I mean, starting with Mbappe, one of the things that was striking, I think, about PSG's latest calamity was that he was so much the exception to mm. it. He he had the he had the drive and the resilience, the willpower, um, and you know the, the the very sort of real quality, not faded quality, but real current quality, um, to to make a massive difference last night. And it almost, you know, having having already won the first leg with a great goal, almost had the game had the tie won by himself in that second in that first half. So just from a performance point of view, he looked like a player who, in some ways, had out was outgrowing his team, had outgrown his team. And um, from that perspective, from a competitive perspective, I was looking at him thinking, you know, you, you, you I know you're playing in a, in a forward line with Neymar and, and, and Messi, but you, you kind of look too good for this team uh, at this point. And he's, he, he reeks of ambition. He reeks of, 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 a, of a player that does want to achieve everything in football, has done from the moment he burst on the scene. And I would... 
I, I, I'm, I'm trying to put myself in his shoes and think that this morning I, I would be thinking this confirms why I have to leave. If I do want the Ballon d'Or, if I do want to be as successful um, as I can be, uh, that means winning Champions Leagues and that means going elsewhere. Um, and in terms of, in, in ter he, I know he's well paid, but I, I think he'll get enough, he would get enough money elsewhere. And um, his his future, I, I think, is it Real Madrid? It really isn't. And just from a, I suppose from an English perspective, it has struck me over the last um, year how silent uh, clubs here have been in terms of Mbappe. A lot of talk about Haaland, a lot of talk about Harry Kane, not so much in Mbappe, and it's not that's no reflection on on how good he is. It's, it's just he is he is seen as uh, ungettable, I think, for Premier League clubs because he will move to Real Madrid. I think that's the expectation. Um, I think like, he, like he's someone that, that's gone on record to say that that life experiences and sporting achievements yeah. are more important to him than money. Yeah. He knows that. He's sorted for life from a financial perspective, anyway, and and even half of what PSG are offering him is is a is a massive contract um, relative to most footballers in the game. And I, I, what I hear is a, a sense of disappointment. One, I think, initially because Paris Saint Germain broke a gentleman's agreement to allow him to leave after four years of this contract. Told that when he signed for Paris Saint Germain, choosing them over Real Madrid, the deal was that he would be allowed to leave after four years entitling them to a large transfer fee which of course Madrid offered them last summer went up to 200 million euros for a player with one year of contract um, at the time and they they broke that promise but also this dissatisfaction with the sporting side of Paris Saint-Germain this kind of repeat dysfunction of coaches who are unhappy there when we, we see Pochettino pushing to leave the club he's been pushing for some time and again after last night talked about how the next few weeks are not going to be easy for him um, and, a, and a team which they seem to want to make more imbalance by bringing superstars in. Um, mm. I think I think we discussed on this podcast when they were making those signings of Sergio Ramos and Lionel Messi that it would actually be a handicap for them in the Champions League because you'd have too many players in the side in addition to Neymar who are not doing the running. Um, and, and I think we, we saw that on the pitch. Yeah, I, th I, think, I think we very much did. I think we saw a team that, that hasn't evolved in a footballing sense because they've been too busy trying to evolve in a, in a commercial sense. And in the run-up to the game, I was reading pieces about how PSG have got this... Um, idea of, of, of becoming the, the coolest club in the world yeah. um, and you know th they talked about accelerating that process by signing star names um, well that's not I don't think working for them in, in a football sense it's not, it doesn't seem compatible with um, what I think really would accelerate it which would be winning the, the Champions League and as you say Duncan signing, signing Ramos uh, signing Messi um, was not the logical action of a club that's very problem in the Champions League has been not being able to to get up to the level of intensity, either physical or mental intensity of that competition um, coming from a, an easier domestic league. That's been their issue. You know, the, the, the key, as you talk, you talk about these turnaround defeats, they have this repeat issue of... Um, coming up against a quality team in a knockout game who suddenly ups the level and rather like a boxer with a glass chin, they just go to the floor very, very quickly, having seen in control before then. And those stellar signings weren't going to help them achieve that, turn that around. You know, they, 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 need, they need more Mbappes. They need more young, dynamic and hungry, thirsty players. Um, I don't think they needed more stars. 
Yes, and a, and, a, and a change to the organisation of the club, which I think is something Mbappe is aware of. Leonardo's position at technical director is in danger. Pochettino's position at uh, as coach is in danger, as as most PSG coaches always seem to be in danger. There's even a there's a possibility that the club president Nasser El Khalifi um, could be handed down a jail sentence by the Swiss public prosecutor who's appealing um, a verdict that was given um, in 2020 on Al-Khalifi's um, what they call a corrupt agreement that he had with with a, with a senior um, individual in FIFA um, while negotiating the Qatar-owned broadcaster BN's extension of its media rights for the 2026 and 2030 World Cups. And I think these kind of things are really important to to put in mind when you're talking about a decision that Mbappe's has to make. And what he has on the other side is Real Madrid spending well over a year specifically trying to sign him and trying to build a, a team around him. I, I think from a football sporting perspective, it makes it um, easier to understand why the decision is headed in this direction. Yeah. Yeah, it it it, it, it just it, it seems like a club that needs that dreaded um, phrase, a cultural reboot. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get on to the cultural rebooters in a in a, a little bit after we've discussed the the big news of today, which is the UK government's decision to formally sanction Roman Abramovich, uh, along with several other. Uh, Russian oligarchs who have uh, assets in the UK, including the, the father of um, Evgeny Lebedev, um, an individual who was ennobled not that long ago by Boris Johnson as Baron Lebedev of Hampton and Siberia. Um, so we have a, a, a member of the House of Lords who is the Baron of Siberia. But um, in Abramovich's case, they, they have uh, they brought in a full asset freeze and travel ban. They estimate his assets at over uh, £9 billion. Pounds. Um, they talk in the official sanction of, of Roman Abramovich being a pro-Kremlin oligarch whose association with Vladimir Putin has included obtaining a financial benefit or other material benefit from Putin and the government of Russia. This includes tax breaks received by companies linked to Abramovich buying and selling shares from and to the state at favourable rates and contracts received in the run-up to the FIFA 2018 World Cup. Um, they also cite the role of his company Evraz, one of his uh, his biggest assets in assisting the Russian government in destabilizing Ukraine. Um, and they've taken this unprecedented measure of um, essentially taking partial control of Chelsea Football Club. Um, there's, there's a range of sanctions on Chelsea Football Club involved in a, in a general license they published today. Um, they allow the club, which they, they describe as a, as a cultural asset to the UK, to continue paying wages, to continue spending on hosting matches um, and travelling to matches, although they've put financial limits on both of those, to continue making payments in relation to loan and sale arrangements of players made prior to today to keep maintaining the stadium they're allowed to pay their directors excluding Roman Abramovich they're also allowed to carry on receiving broadcast revenue prize money and money owed on transfers and loans but importantly any funds which the club receives from those sources have to be frozen in order to keep them away from Abramovich they're not allowed to sell tickets um, so only season ticket holders will be will be allowed to um, to attend the rest of matches this season, and in terms of the sale of the club, that which has been talked about in great detail, and we did a, a long podcast on on that last week, that has been frozen. Although government briefing is that the government would consider an application for a license to allow the sale of the club as long as none of the revenues coming from that sale um, would be would benefit the sanctioned individual, i.e. Roman Abramovich, while the individual is subject to sanctions. 
What's, what was your immediate response to this move? Because the, the, the government's been under, under pressure to do this for over a week now. And I, I think it, it caught quite a few people by surprise, Jonathan. Yeah, it, it, it did. And, and my immediate um, response was, wow, really? Because although we knew this was a, a possibility, um, actually seeing it in black and white, seeing that citation about Abramovich, and then starting to digest what it might mean, um, even, as I say, I've been prepared for it mentally, was, was, was a kind of, wow, because this is uncharted territory. And when you really think it through, um, it it is very complex for the football club to continue operating in these circumstances. Um, and in fact, as we've been talking, Chelsea have, have released a statement, not Abramovich, a Chelsea statement, which is in itself significant, saying that they want talks with the government to try and clarify um, ex the scope of the license and um, how they can, in, in the words of this statement, be allowed to operate as normal as, as possible. And I think we're all sort of still wondering about, about all of this. But it, it, the big, I guess the biggest um, immediate impact is on the sale of the club. Um, that will now be um, a quite different process to what we thought. And then, of course, you can't help but think about um, the maybe more banal football issues, but important issues of player contracts, um, Thomas Tuchel's future, um, transfers in the summer, uh, and just think, just little things like the logistics of going to play a Champions League game in, in Lille, uh, Lille with, um, you know, uh, difficulties in spending money on travel and, and, and all that kind of things. Um, it's... Uh, it's it's you know these are the world this is the world champions these this is the European champions it's football's not seen a, a situation like this before and um, Chelsea's future as we know it has got to be in big doubt. Yeah, I, I see in the statement that they've said this will include seeking permission for the license to mm. be amended in order to allow the club to operate as normal as possible. Now I, I think that tells you. <clears throat> That they are seriously worried about the ramifications yeah. of 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 the license and the, and the restrictions that have been placed upon them. I put a question to the UK government about this, um, and what it would mean in terms of uh, sale of the club, what it would mean in terms of transfer of of players and agreeing new contracts with players. Um, and, and also what it would mean in terms of selling season tickets for next season. And uh, was the basic brief was that they can't do these things. They, they would need a special license to sell the club. Um, and that uh, their immediate priority was to hold Abramovich to account. Um, and that the next season, um, also, um, the transfer window opening was some time away. So uh, it, it was not of relevance to them at present, um, which leaves the club <laughs> unable to do normal business because we can look simply at, at players are going to be out of contract in the summer. Let's forget about players that Chelsea want to sign to, to improve the squad. But you have three um, of their top central defenders, Cesar Aspilicueta, Antonio Rudiger, and Andreas Christensen, all out of contract in the summer. And as it stands, Chelsea are prevented from signing new contracts for those players. They have another seven senior players going out of contract in 2023, including Ngol Kante, uh, Marcus Alonso, and Thiago Silva, and Jorginho. Um, in normal circumstances, the club would be trying to retain the services of, of, of those players, um, are choosing which ones they wanted to leave, potentially selling some of the players on, on one year of contract uh, in order to reinvest in, in the team. But as it stands, they can't do any of that and, um, and appear to have to apply to the government um, for a special sanction to, to engage in, in normal football club activity. Yeah, I mean, the, the, so the, I have to say that this this doesn't seem to have been fully thought through in terms of the detail by the by the government, and 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 I've seen, you know, we've seen this in in, in many fields of, of of life. This isn't a government that's that's big on the detail, 
but that 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 key phrase about operating normally as a club, there are so much so many complexities to to doing so, and and each club operates differently. But but Chelsea specifically are a club that have operated through um, a high volume of transfer dealing, whether that's in yes. senior players or indeed youth players and loans and so on. Um, a high churn of that and um, and significant owner investment. That's essentially how the club's been sustained for, for nearly 20 years. Now, the owner investment's gone and they're severely compromised, as you say, Duncan, in, 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 in buying and selling players now. That's unclear. Do they have to apply for a government license every time um, they they want to, to do that kind of deal? And then it's on top of all that, it's, 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 it's at a juncture where there the probably is a fair amount of, of dealing to be to be done um huge uncertainty and um i mean one of my friends and colleagues rob draper has been tweeting this morning that you know if chelsea enter administration they'll get a nine point penalty well who knows this feels a bit like administration you know if if the club if the club if this club that has relied on owner investment um cannot now function um financially then i don't know where we're heading with it but you know i not, it just seems that everything's now on the table um and and huge uncertainty over a range of issues um individual players and and the bigger future of the club does this strike you as a stick that the government is wielding in order to accelerate the sale process that abramovich yeah. initiated in you know, in a in a great hurry after saying what he wanted to do was hand over the stewardship to the to the Chelsea Foundation, um, and then in, inside the space of a week, he was saying he was going to sell the club and uh, hand over the net proceeds, important term, to victims of the war in Ukraine, which was later clarified could include, for example, Russian soldiers who were involved in the in the war war in Ukraine. Is th- does that coupled with the guidance I've had that um, the, the summer window is a long time away yeah. um, suggests that what the government are trying to do is get a problem off their hands and, and force Abramovich to sell as quickly as possible. Yeah, it, 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 it does. It very much does. That's, that's the most um, sort of logical um, reason for the timing, actually, as much as anything else. Um, clearly, the government want this to be off their hands this this is this is actually a government that that just likes to try and do what's popular um and and what causes themselves the minimum of 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 hassle shall we say i mean just think about how the whole covid scenario went but but yes i think for them um abraham has just talked about his love for chelsea and how anything he does will be you know with with chelsea's long-term future um in mind and the benefit of the club. Well, one scenario would be simply to to give the club away now, wouldn't it? Um, if he can't make any money from it, uh, he could he could help solve this problem uh, quite quickly. How who chooses the next owner though is is is, is one of the questions I've got. I mean, you know, what, how how is that going to be? How is that going to be done? Um, is 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 he going to do it? He can't make any money from it now. What what incentive? As I say, apart from this custodianship idea, is different to do that. Yeah, the, um, the government clear that he will not be allowed to take any money from this while while the sanctions are in place. Um, there are various ways in which. Uh, money could have been taken and uh, as one person pointed out to me uh, the phrase victims of the war in Ukraine could be expanded to include Roman Abramovich himself <laughs> by by certain lawyers given that um, he's having assets uh, t- frozen and taken off him as a result of the war in the Ukraine um, who chooses the, the, the sale, I think, is a very important point because now the government have essentially given themselves control over that by saying yeah. that a special license will be required just to permit the sale. So effectively, they now have a say in, in whether it's sold 
uh, and we assume they want it to be sold as quickly as possible for the reasons we just discussed and who it's to be sold to. But I think your point, Jonathan, is an, an important one. When, when Abramovich talks about having the best interests of Chelsea at heart, when you look at the over £1.5 billion pounds of loans to him that are left on the club account. So, you you know, roughly a hundred million pounds a year of, of owner funding for the best interest of the club would be for Abramovich to write off those loans and, and hand the club over at zero cost to whoever he perceives to be the best custodian going forward because they will then automatically have more capital available to invest in in running the club and adjusting its its structures and 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 keeping them competitive when again something we talked about in the podcast last week they have substantial problems with things like stadium um there's you know over a billion pounds of investment required to get their stadium up to a competitive level in in elite football that that would be the 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 play that would sort of save his legacy. I think with Chelsea fans, I, th- I think beyond the Chelsea fan base, that that's gone. You know, the hard to argue this great owner sort of argument unless you're a Chelsea supporter. But but I think we've seen over from Abramovich over the last couple of weeks. There does seem to be a bit of legacy, in fact, a lot of legacy sort of awareness and attempts to try and save his legacy. First of all, the handing it over to the the, the, the the sham of trying to hand it over to the community trust. And then the kind of statement which tried to make clear that he wouldn't take, um, you know, profit from it. But then opposing that, you could also see a businessman still wanting some money. So, you know, that he wanted the, the net proceeds. It wasn't the, the proceeds, it was the net proceeds. So he clearly did want to make some money. But I think he's been trying to balance going out with some kind of, um, you know, love still there from Chelsea um, and the business sense. This, the, 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 the one player that, yeah, would be to, to just turn this over um, for nothing to somebody that the fans would applaud as a new owner. And that way, I'm sure he, he, he would remain for a lot of supporters, the Chelsea benefactor and the Chelsea Legend, and you can. There's, there's there's a lot of supporters out there defending him even now on social media today. So, so that's still there. Um, but you make a really interesting point, Duncan, about the, the, the you know the, the government um, by the by the fact that they are controlling the license for the club being sold. That presumably, um, you know, if there were three rival bidders. Did the government grant them all a license or did the government decide which one's the most appropriate? Um, as I say, these, are, these aren't details the government will have thought of, by the way. This isn't a government that thinks about these, these details, but they're going to have to confront them. Yes, I, I think you see in the, the statements from the government about the sanctions that they're conscious of legal challenges from Abramovich and, the, and they're bringing in a new bill next week in order to make it um, far harder for uh, oligarchs to sue the government over these sanctioning decisions. Um, I think it, when I was uh, preparing a piece for the, the Sunday Times this weekend, I was talking to people who are very familiar with takeovers in, in the UK football scene. And they very much described this as a negotiated process, that what was happening was a negotiated process in which Abramovich was trying to negotiate the best exit for himself and the government were trying to um, negotiate the best um, exit for Abramovich from a prominent British life. They've given themselves a much bigger tool uh, in in that negotiation um, today. One thing I think we should briefly mention before we move on to Manchester United is that in that sanction citation, Alisher Usmanov is mentioned yeah. as a as someone um, with close business relationship and mutual, who, who's benefited from mutual assistance from Roman Abramovich um, and has been involved in in obtaining a benefit from or supporting the government of Russia. Now we we know Alisher Usmanov has a very important role at Everton, um, as we've discussed on on previous podcasts. Um, the 
the guidance from people who are very familiar with that, how that takeover happened was that Usmanov, when he had shares in Arsenal, um, when Stan Kroenke prevented him from buying the club, decided to invest in another English football club with the idea that he would turn them into to a club that could surpass Arsenal, go to the Champions League, compete for the Premier League title and, and built a structure in which he could have ownership of the club with someone else holding his shares. Um, there's no general license being applied to Everton as yet. Do you think that's something Everton should be concerned about um, if the, the UK yeah. government were to dig deeper into what happened with Usmanov's purchase of Everton uh, and, and decided to, to apply a similar course to that football club having started with Chelsea? V very much so. And the mention of Usmanov's name in Abramovich's citation really raised my eyebrows. It made me think, wow, they, this, is, this isn't good news for Everton because there's now a, a real linking together of, of um, those two oligarchs and the Russian regime. And the logical next step is to, to scrutinize Usmanov's football interests further, um, which hasn't really been done at government level yet. And Everton um, are, you know, do, have been trying to do their best to disassociate themselves from um, too close links with Usmanov. But what's never fully been explained is um, Usmanov's relationship with Mashiri and the, therefore Mashiri's funding of Everton because um, those two are so linked, have been so linked throughout uh, Mashiri's business career certainly um, that before you even get to the question of, of sponsorships and, and Usmanov's role in that just the, the, the where, where Mashiri's funds come from and how linked they are to Usmanov's businesses hasn't hasn't fully been looked at. Yeah, and uh, there'll be pressure for the government to do so now. Yeah, Mashiri, a, a co-owner co -owner of of USM Holdings, um, Usmanov's most prominent company, was chairman. Mm -hmm. I, I believe he's now resigned his chairmanship mm -hmm. in that in that period where um, Everton suspended. The, the the massive sponsorship deals the majority of their their commercial revenue comes from Usmanov uh, owned or part owned companies um so yes if if the government wanted to dig into that i don't think it would be too hard for them to construct yeah. a case and, and and everton are already a club that's struggling with ffp and rather like chelsea have a new stadium issue to address um, and a huge amount of questions surrounding the playing squad and future funding. So it it, it comes, it, you know, any sort any sort of tightening would come at a, a really bad time for Everton too. It's a time when their future is very very uncertain. Let's move on to Manchester United. Um, you mentioned cultural reboot um, <laughs> early on in the podcast. Um, We've just watched Manchester United go to Manchester City um, with Ralph Ranić in, in charge and, uh, and play a formation I don't think anyone expected him to use. I, I think Pep Guardiola himself was surprised and, and told his players to, to just kind of sit back, control possession and, and work out exactly what they were doing before, before exploiting it. But with Paul Pogba and Bruno Fernandes as two forwards in, a, um, in front of... Uh, a two-man midfield and and uh, and wingers Cristiano Ronaldo out of the game. There's debate over whether he took himself out of the game or whether he was dropped, and uh, and and therefore decided to go back to to Portugal um, for treatment on that hip flexor muscle issue injury that we've heard more of. Um, what did you make of that performance, Jonathan? And um, and what have you made of? of Ralph Ranić's attempt to to fix Manchester United from a sporting perspective. Well, I I actually I I, I first I, I saw the formation and and what they were trying to do as uh, logical to the extent that at least it is it was a Ralph Ranić um, style of play. It was a it was a Ralph Ranić set of ideas which we haven't always seen in his tenure. 
Um, but that idea of um, certainly from the front of the pitch, um, that idea of of prioritizing, you know, I guess false nines, prioritizing pressing. Um, I think Ronaldo, and you probably know better than me, Duncan. I'll be honest. I think he probably was dropped, um, and this is how Ranić did want to play. Uh, and I thought, I thought for United, it was almost worse because of the fact that it worked quite well for twenty-five minutes, uh, and then, as you say, City then just solved the problem and gave them just as bad a beating as ever. Uh, it was almost like. <laughs> It's almost like giving United had given it their best shot, and that was still miles away from being good enough, as opposed to, you know, the Solskjaer's last derby, which United weren't even they weren't even there. You could almost write that off as just, you know, a, a, a broken before a supine and all that kind of stuff. But this was actually United trying and the manager doing what he wanted to do. Um, the biggest thing for me was, and I, I, I. I He's undermined. He's been continually undermined. Man United player managers have been continually undermined by players that just aren't good enough, and that's that has always started at the back. Um, before you even get into midfield, I think that's been the case. Even going back to David Moyes taking over and inheriting an aging defence that just needed needed to be changed, but had icons in it who were difficult to shift, but. I, I, that to me has been it's been a club that's been focused on buying at the top end of the pitch and ignoring the huge issues at the back and in midfield and I, again you know the, it, it broke down because yeah 25 minutes the high press worked playing playing high up the pitch worked not having a number nine worked all the Ranić stuff worked but ultimately um, no legs no energy no decent decision making um no discipline further back in the pitch and, and, and the, the same result as, as always. Well, I, I would say if you want to high press from the front, Paul Pogba wouldn't be my choice of individual to, to implement yes. regular, rigorously that tactical <laughs> system. Um, That's a fair point too. <laughs> Um, well, actually, one one coach sent me a message uh, just a, a minute or two into the game um, when he saw the lineup, and he said, "I would like to understand football enough to understand Manchester United's idea for this game. We are we are too far behind this mastermind's tactics," was his comment. But um, I mean, you, you talk about the defence, and, and I think you're absolutely right that aging defence that David Moyes inherited. But I think we have to note that they've actually built themselves a a structurally incompetent defence by spending a lot of money on it. Yeah. So you have Luke Shaw, yeah. highest priced uh, fullback in world football when he was bought. You got Juan Basaka, mm. same story when he was bought. And then the, the 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 best example of the lot, Harry Maguire as as a centre back who these managers um, don't seem to be able to drop because Manchester United have so much invested in him. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely right. Um, and players, are, but the biggest difference for me with the, the, this United and, and certainly Liverpool and City uh, is they they have they cannot play high up the pitch and they haven't been able to play high up the pitch since the end of the Fergie era. And and if you're talking about Fergie's traditions, he was one of the original managers to play high up the pitch. He'd said to his centre backs, "You defend one on one. I'm not interested in cover." You're good enough. You're a Man United defender. He said that to Rio Ferdinand. He's, before that, he said it to Gary Pallister and so on. Yeah. You defend one-on-one. Japstan, you're good enough to do that. He was the original high line. And then the defence got old. And then they started buying badly. And, and you've had a succession of teams which have had very, very slow, deep-lying defences that are completely unable to go up the pitch and squeeze the play. Now, They've had some success in that time playing counter-attack in football because of that. I would suggest that if they're, resi- if they're wedded to a Maguire and Lindelof and Luke Shaw defence who aren't going to get you high up the pitch, then they have to do what, let's say, Gareth Southgate did with some of those players in the Euros and put three at the back and sit deep and, and play in that way um, and probably needed to get an Antonio Conte or something 
who can some I mean the weird alchemy of Conte is he can somehow do that and yet play attacking football. I've never quite figured Conte out, but um, you know, he's 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 a he's a fantastic coach. But there's very few coaches that can give you um can play with those types of players at the back and still find enough scope to attack. And certainly it's been beyond Manchester United in the last while. I, I think, you know, Maguire has had an awful season and it, it, it was another low point. I thought Lindelof is, is always a guy that, you know, he, he gets away with it just because he's not quite as bad as the others. But he... <laughs> Wan-Bissaka, I don't understand why he's back in the team. Um, and, you know, Alex Tellers has actually played quite well under Ranjik and, and just but didn't have a good game. Um, and then you had Fred in chaos, you know, Ernest, but I don't know what position he ever... You know, I don't, don't know what he is, really, to be quite honest. And McTominay had a bad game. And to be fair, you don't, and you're right about Pogba, that's not a high-pressing player. I, I, I felt he... I, but again, maybe that... Again, the... the the squad who 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 could have done that in the squad? You know, I'm looking at the bench that they had. Couldn't be Juan Mata. It wasn't going to be Marcus Rashford. Um, I think I if you if you wanted to do that, you'd put Scott McTominay there. Um, he's a guy with yeah. with high press and also was originally a forward. So he, yeah. you know, he's, he's he's quite a good finisher too. But um, yeah. yeah, yeah, good point. Or or, or or actually Fred. I mean, you maybe move Fred yes. to Matic in. I get that. Um, but so, yeah, I mean, look, it, it's mess, isn't it? It's it's an, it's an, it was another game where, as you say, there's a complete dysfunction between the coach and the the, the players at the, his disposal. Ranić after the game said they cannot can almost not afford to drop any more points. Um, they're fifth and forty seven points. Three more games played than Arsenal, who are in fourth, and and two more than Tottenham, who are two be two points behind them in seventh. They play Tottenham on Saturday. Um, Richard Arnold, the new chief executive, uh, in a in a recent investors call, talked about how their focus was on driving the business forward. That that starts with John Murto and Darren Fletcher really driving forward the football activities, and said the key word is digitisation. Um, he's yeah. in terms of moving Manchester United forward. They've appointed a a director of data science, which is something else that they uh, trumpeted in this um, investors call, and they've uh, increased their digital interactions over the first quarter by over a hundred percent. They have more than any other club in the world. They say. <laughs> um, what? How much actually needs to change here? Because we know they're going to bring a new manager in, having dispensed with the idea that Ranić can do it. Ranić originally came in expecting to do it. But is a change of manager sufficient to turn this culture around? Uh, no, but I suppose it it comes back to being the the the, the, the obvious starting point. Um, I think that... The Richard Arnold era is is in its infancy. I think the one kind of the shaft of light of optimism for United fans, I would say, is that the signs are so far that, and it tells what I'm hearing, is Arnold does not want to be Edward Wood. He does not want to, you know, football's not his train set. Ed wanted to 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 play play trains with transfers and so on, and Arnold's not interested in doing that and does want to delegate the running of the business. So I think that's actually not a bad starting point where um, the, the, the the football side's going to be, you know, run by um, supposed football experts. Then you get into the detail, of course, of who they're going to be. And I'm sure you've talked uh, plenty about the the many layers of, of um, director of football and football exec that they've got. Um, but I think... I, the right manager would be the right start, um, and a manager that is has enough kudos and capital to make these tough football decisions and to be able to to say, "I don't care if Harry Maguire costs eighty million pounds. I, I I want to play on the halfway line, um, and I'm afraid Harry's got to go, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. It feels like. Um, you know, I've, I, I was reflecting on this recently. I've spent, you know, a career reporting in football, sort of trying to look at the deeper things behind the obvious. And and I, I, that includes, you know, football clubs more than about its manager. It's about 
the structure, the culture, blah, blah, blah. But you actually, I think over the years I've sort of come back to seeing that's true, but the the position of, of the manager is so important um, and is demonstrably still the most important thing when you look at the impact of Klopp and, and Guardiola and, and, and briefly Tuchel and, and that Conte has been having, for example. So, uh, yeah, I, th- I think they have, the starting point has to be the right manager. Um, and at least, as I say, they, they, they might have um, a better, that manager might have a better scope with uh, imposing themselves on the club with a, with, a, with a chief exec or with an exec chairman that's, that's actually just says, look, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to grow our digital interactions and our noodle sponsorships and you guys do the football. We're talking about the culture of the club being important um, and one of one of the things I've heard from people involved in Manchester United that there was a mistake made um, when David Moyes took over in the, the importance he granted to Wayne Rooney uh, in, in terms of the organisation of the team uh, and decision-making in the club and that upset some of the senior players at the time. You, Johnny, just recently did a, a remarkable interview with Rooney um, where he talked about some of the problems he had from a, um, a mental health perspective, um, from a um, off off-field lifestyle perspective. Um, he talked about his drinking issues he had while he was at Manchester United. Um, and he, he told you that uh, he would study United's training s- schedule. And, and if I saw a couple of days window, I thought, right, that's a couple of days where I can go at it and forget things. And then he'd dust, dust myself down and uh, use eye drops and get through that week's training. I was in a really bad place. I just well, wonder how it was to interview a footballer in that fashion. That's just a, a remarkable degree of admission from Rooney. How how was he in the, when you when you were talking to him? Yeah, it was it was remarkable hearing hearing this. Um, I do know Wayne pretty well, and he's a, he. In one sense, it didn't surprise me because um, honesty is quite important to him, and mm-hmm. and he's been keeping a lot. Um, in the closet, I suppose, over the the, the the lifestyle issues he was talking about. And I think he wanted, he, you know, this was on the back of him doing his Amazon documentary and wanting to, um, he, he, he wants people to know who he is. That's important to him. Authenticity is important to him. And I think he took the decision, I want to get it all out. I want everyone to know. And that's why he dealt with um, some of the domestic issues in, in the documentary with him and Colleen. Um, and and wanted to talk about his his issues with with drinking. I mean, the thing that boggled my mind was um, he he you know the, the period that he was talking about in that quote there was really he, he sort of I guess probably pre the two thousand eight Champions League final in that kind of first five or six seven years of, of real mega stardom. Um, and it, but but the, you know that coincided with his best best football as well, which is um, kind of crazy to think about. Um, and but not in another sense because I, when he when he got a little bit of control over his you know that that binge drinking side of it was the point when he started to get a bit of control over uh, his life and who he was, and that also meant controlling his anger and controlling sort of temper issues which he admits made him you know probably made him diminished him as a player so it's, it's fascinating to hear someone talking about this cocktail of, of issues and feelings that were sort of devouring him off the pitch but actually making him really great on the pitch um, and it just made it made me think oh my goodness what you know looking in on that period it's fascinating because we all looked at Wayne and thought you know that there's a volatility there. Maybe there's something going on there um, that uh, you know more than meets the eye. But I, I you know, it, it, he, he's a very honest lad, and he he, he he talked about all of this without emotion mm-hmm. um, and with a sense of I just want to get this out, you know. And 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 
I think the biggest he's 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 somebody that's grown comfortable, very comfortable in their own skin and who they are, and is happy now for it all to be out there in the world to know. Um, the other it was fascinating because you know again he was talking about the the, the this was when Fergie was manager, and and his, his relationship with Fergie is one of the most fascinating chapters of Manchester United because I think you know I, I, he. It said to me that Fergie regarded him as the one player that he could never get through to, he could never tame. Wayne's always been his own person, very strong-willed and individual. And, uh, and and when I asked them, you know, when you were feeling all these things and you you were you were taking those two days to drink, and he said he drank because he wanted to forget the fact he was famous. He wanted to forget the fact that he was under all this pressure. He just wanted to be. Um, what he felt inside, which was the lad from Croxteth again, and and just blot things out. Um, I said, but didn't you talk to to Fergie about this? And he said, no, not at all. And and, and cut, cut cut it dead. And I was like, right, that's telling in its itself, because I think every, nearly every other player, maybe every other player, um, maybe with the exception of Roy Keane, would have talked to Fergie about such things because that's a relationship he had. Fascinating, really fascinating, thinking back over that period. Did you know he was going to talk about that going into the interview? Not at all, not at all. Okay. Um, I, 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 I expected him to, yeah, talk about the stuff in the, in the film um, and talk about his, his family a bit and, and, and personal stuff, yes, but it, it, no, not at all. And he volunteered it. He came... He, he, you know, that's when you know as an interviewer, right, someone, someone really does want to get this off their chest. It's when, you know, they, 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 they bring it up. That's, that's, that's what he did. So um, it was, uh, it was, it was really interesting. He, he has, he's done an impressive job at Derby County under remarkably difficult circumstances. You know him probably better, I think, than any other journalist in in the UK, any other journalist full stop having been a ghost on his column for the Sunday Times for a long period of time and interviewed him a number of occasions during his career. How high do you think he can reach as a manager? I think he'll be a Premier League manager and a very good one. Um, I really do. I think the template for him right now is Steven Gerrard. I wonder if he can go higher. I think what Wayne's got is Razor sharp football brain. That you only had to mm-hmm. him on the pitch, and he had an understanding on the pitch. And that that type of person doesn't always translate into being a good coach, but um, but it, it seems to be translating for him. Um, his his ability to actually his social ability is pretty high in 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 the dressing room. Whether it was as a young player at Chel- at, at Everton, who was instantly accepted by the senior players or as a, as a figure at Manchester United who, for example, became Ronaldo's best friend when Ronaldo was a young foreign player trying to make his way um, and became, you know, really the sort of bridge in the dressing room between so many different sort of, um, types of players. He was always had that high sort of social IQ as well. And that, I think that's important as a manager. I think it's man management is very, very good. And I've seen that firsthand. I've spent the day with him at Derby and seen that not just in the way he deals with players, but the way he deals with staff around the place. Um, and and then there's, you know, there's a humility about him as well, which I think is actually quite valuable and quite important. And he said to me in that interview, you know, I know I'm not the best coach at this football club. That's that's Liam Rossini. So he, 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 takes, he takes training. Uh, my strength is going to be the man being the manager, managing man managing the thing, and and listening to him and my analysts and my coaches and making decisions off the back of that. I think it's a it's a pretty good package. The gravitas he has as a player, the football intelligence, the social IQ, and the ability to delegate all of those add up to um, a pretty good package to be a manager. Um, and I think as long as he avoids the Everton job, <laughs> he'll have a really good career. <laughs> I just realised we had a, we had a long discussion about uh, Manchester United's managerial problems. And I didn't ask you who you thought 
would be the best candidate to to turn them around at present. Obviously, Rooney's not ready for that stage of his career. But um, who would your choice be? And I know this isn't a difficult, this isn't an easy pick at all. Thomas Tuchel, without a doubt. Um, I, I said this. I said this before Christmas. If if you're gonna, if you're gonna be logical, and and let's face it, United haven't been. But if you're gonna hire <laughs> Ralph Ranić and try and move, you hire Ranić because you recognise you need to move into the the modern era, and you need to learn how to press, and you need to learn um, positional discipline and all that, all, all the all the modern, and you need to structure the club, all that sort of stuff. Get the best Ralph Ranić coach out there and okay you can't get Jurgen Klopp so go and get go and get Thomas go and get Thomas Tuchel and um, I, I, I think Tuchel's well I've, I've seen his his kind of despair and and being ground down by the Chelsea situation over the last couple of weeks they kept the club keep putting him up there as the as the face of the club the spokesman and, and having to continue to, to to do a very difficult job in, in answering all the questions at this time. And um, you can see it's having its toll on him. And um, what's happened today, I think, heightens the sense he might be available. So that would be my pick. I, I, I think Pochettino, even before last night, wouldn't have been mine. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's going too, in, in too much detail. I... I he, he he was never Klopp and Pep's equal when he was in England, and that was when he was at his peak. And and the last three or four years of his career have been ones of underachievement. And I have reservations about Eric Ten Hag, who plays wonderful football, um, but it, it it's a big transition to make from Ajax to Manchester United. You know, from being at the dominant club with the best players where you're in a fairly low-grade league in a cosy environment to all the stuff. I think he's, I'm, sh- I'm sure he's got the coaching ability, but to be the actual manager of, a, of, a, of something as big as Manchester United is difficult. It's difficult. It's not just about the stuff on the pitch. So that would be my answer. Go for Tuchel. With, you're right. The, the status or position he's had, the Premier League experience he's had, and one of the elements of being a manager in, in modern football, Premier League football, is being the face of the club, the spokesman yeah. for the club. And I think he's handled himself um, incredibly competently and, and generously uh, being the face of Chelsea during this period. And of course, he's he, he brought them the Champions League um, and and the club World Cup. So that's a, it's an interesting proposal. And one, one thing we didn't mention earlier in our discussion of where Chelsea are, if, if a manager or a player was looking for just cause to cancel his contract, um, what has happened to Chelsea today would be a, a reasonable bit of ammunition in that, uh, in that legal case. We, we usually wrap the podcast up with, uh, with hero and villain. Um, I'm going to choose the villain this week. And uh, since we're talking about Chelsea, I'm going to select Chelsea supporters um, for their decision to chant Roman Abramovich's name during the minutes applause uh, that was organised for Ukraine ahead of their last Premier League game, which um, Tuchel, as is his want, was very, very clear and, and very direct in, in criticising. One of the reasons I uh, I talk about um his, his eloquence and, and, and decision-making in these circumstances. Um, Jonathan, who would you choose as a, as a hero of the past week in, in football? I think it's Karim Benzema. Um, I, uh, I, I just, it's a golden age for older strikers, isn't it? Lewandowski the night before, Benzema, his gigantic performance mm. against um, PSG, answering the gauntlet thrown down to him by Mbappe, his friend, was sensational. And um, that's what that's what a top player looks like. That's what leadership looks like. Uh, that's what that's what my, that's what PSG didn't have. What I've loved about Benzema throughout his career is, and I saw him at Lyon uh, as a teenager, a fantastic individual talent, but also a fantastic team player. Um, and if you think about how he's gone from being the third wheel, 
very high quality third wheel, an enabler for in the BBC um, forward line, enabling and helping Ronaldo and Bale and, and, and scoring a share of the goals. To then having to take over the mantle as a main man, and you know he's got the promising but 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 still pretty erratic Vinicius Junior alongside him, um, so he coaxes him through. Um, his passes were sensational. His, his runs were sensational. The finishes. Um, so he was he was a man of great performance. Thirty four and better than ever. Yes, it was. An amazing performance, um, quality of, of what he did in the pitch. But I think that one of the things I really enjoyed was that shot of him after he scored the third goal, yeah. the camera image yeah. of him, and, the, yeah. and the, the how much it meant to him. And yeah. we don't see that so often, I think, with with top players in the in the elite game because so many of these clubs are winning games so easily. But I think that was was telling that at that age and at that club in that situation he wanted to turn that game around and he did. Yeah, what a man. Willpower and action. Someone, someone said he'd sco- he scored for Real Madrid in the Champions League in every one of the last 16 years, which in itself just boggles the mind. <laughs> does. Thank you, Jonathan, for joining us on the Transfer Window podcast and um, we hope we will have you back on again soon. That was the news before it became news. You can follow us via multiple social media channels on at Transfer Podcasts. I'm at Duncan Castles and Jonathan is on Twitter at Jay Northcroft. Please rate, review and share the pod. The next edition of the Transfer Window will be with you soon. Bye.